the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll share a conversation with James Robin, author of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. We'll also talk with Lori Rees. She's a senior research fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation. She is the co-author of a new article, How to Stop Targeted Violence in U.S. Cities. She'll join us at the top of the second hour of today's program. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Now, keep in mind, this is a campaign season, so this is going to happen with some regularity. The President Trump weighed in on Joe Biden's vice presidential running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris, on Wednesday, saying there was nobody more insulting to Biden than she was during the Democratic primaries. Harris made her uh, mark on the presidential race during a debate in Miami and 2019, when she called out Biden for touting his past work with segregation as senators and his opposition to school busing. As a woman of Indian and Jamaican heritage, she said, taking uh, Biden's opposition personally, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. That little girl was me, she said at the time. Well, President Trump added that Harris also claimed she believed uh, the women who have accused Biden of inappropriate touching and kissing over the years. I believe them, she said, and I respect them being able to tell their stories and having the courage to do it, she told reporters in April of last year. But Trump accused Harris of suddenly changing her tune. He said he was surprised that Biden picked her because of the horrible way she talked about him and, frankly, because the way she dropped the uh, dropped like a rock in the Democratic primaries. Just before the president's news conference, uh, Biden and Harris appeared together for the first time since Biden announced Tuesday that the junior U.S. senator from California would be his running mate. Of course, all kinds of things go into the calculus of who ends up being the vice presidential running mate for any presidential candidate. Well, after weeks of unrest in the downtown area here in Portland, the main action appears to have shifted toward neighborhoods just outside the downtown area, prompting residents to post their concerns on various Internet forums. Residents are taking to online platforms such as Reddit to post their growing safety concerns as protests in the city approach their 80th consecutive night. Oregon Live reported one post who claimed to live in the Kenton neighborhood wrote lots of people work hard to make this little neighborhood pleasant and to help local businesses stay open. Now it's trashed. This was not a BLM or Black Lives Matter protest. This was a tantrum by a bunch of entitled kids in quote. What I saw another wrote. Uh, last night was violence. These people did not care about the property. Michael Morell, a longtime resident in Kenton, told KGD, KGW TV, talk, work your problems out and vote. If you don't like what's happening, vote them out, vote for change. That's democracy, end quote. Another resident who lives near the police union building told a reporter his family was concerned about the protests and was forced to close their windows at night to keep tear gas out. The reported shift away from downtown has brought demonstrators and police to normally quiet streets, residents uh, complain. Detractors of the violent protests have warned that um, 
What first unfolds in the heart of major cities will eventually spill over into residential areas. In other related developments, former Las Vegas Police Lieutenant Sutton has called out uh, not pressing, uh, I should say calls not pressing charges against Portland rioters, a complete surrender by the DA. And arrested Portland protesters won't face charges under the revised policy, no fines, no community service. Salt Lake City PD suspends its uh, officer after his canine bit a man who says he was complying with orders. And a 10-year-old Florida girl was beginning her first day of online school when her mother was shot to death by her ex-boyfriend inside their home, according to investigators. The suspect fatally shot uh, the 32-year-old mother in front of her four children and their two cousins at their Indian town home. Martin County Sheriff William Snyder told reporters the shooting unfolded during an argument after Williams entered the home at about 8 a.m. and confronted uh, the mother of these children about an online video. The girl's teacher um, witnessed the incident via video while setting up the class Zoom call. The teacher's um, online. I've never done a Zoom with children, so I'm uh, picturing there's some um, other children on and the teacher can see the children, he said, adding that she heard the commotion, heard the profanity, realized it was some sort of domestic altercation. She said she muted her button so nobody was able to hear what happened, but the things unfolded as described. Meanwhile, a uh, Ronald McDonald house in Chicago was vandalized by looters while some 30 families were inside huddled in fear with their sick children. And Chicago PD launched a looting video site to ID offenders. A Wisconsin police shooting suspect has been taken into custody in Indiana. Guy Benson says the choice of Kamala Harris was predictable as Team Biden has been running a prevent defense style campaign for months. They believe they are ahead by a significant margin and have thus kept their shaky gaff machine of a candidate off the grid to the greatest extent realistically possible. But he explains Harris isn't the moderate the media is painting her to be, but rather on the party's far left edge. Alexandria DeSanctis, she explains, she is without question the most radically pro-abortion candidate to run for president or vice president in the history of our country. Meanwhile, Uber could shut down for a year due to a California law. In a new four-page declaration, Brad Rosenthal, Uber's director of strategic operations initiative, said that if the company has to reclassify the bulk of its workforce as employees rather than contractors, it will force Uber to dramatically restructure its entire business model and its relationships with drivers and riders. In a call with investors on Wednesday, Lyft CEO John Zimmer said the company would likely also suspend operations in the state for similar reasons. This is in the state of California. Wisconsin state agency has told employees to wear masks in their Zoom meetings. Perhaps I've misunderstood the value of masks, even if they're at home and if they're alone. Senator Jim Talent explains, in dealing with a pandemic, the right goal is to reduce the total human harm over the life of the pandemic. That includes serious illness and death inflicted by the disease itself but also harm from other illnesses that would have been treated, but for restrictions imposed by the pandemic, as well as the secondary but very real human deprivations that occur when the normal patterns of life are disrupted. And that doesn't explain why Wisconsin's state agency is telling employees to wear masks in Zoom meetings when they're home alone, but there you have it. Mr. Biden has hit his peak as Democrats um, have kept him hidden. Jim Garrity points out that for Biden these days, Maybe as good as it gets. As November approaches, he will have a tougher time campaigning almost entirely via Zoom calls from Delaware. 
His fellow Democrats are not hiding their concerns that three 90-minute debates offer ample opportunities for stumbling blocks. Traditionally, presidential campaigns tighten near the end. Nate Silver, he ominously declares that Biden's chance of winning are about the same as Hillary Clinton's chances this time four years ago. Now, that doesn't take into account his now announced vice presidential running mate. What difference she will make? Only time will ultimately tell. And the district attorney has confirmed that many rioters in Portland won't be prosecuted. We're talking about the Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. He says that they've made policy changes so hundreds of rioters will be back on the streets to keep their riots going. Only the more extreme cases will remain. Of course, he and others are defining extreme cases. If your property has been damaged, uh, you might uh, believe that to be extreme. But according to the um, district attorney, that may not fall within their rubric. Well, former colonels um, claim that uh, Trump might try a coup if he loses the conspiracy theory that's been around every president, at least since the Clinton years, but never quite like this. And this time the media is actually pushing it. Byron York says other similar conspiracy theories are bouncing around. And apparently Jamie Lee Curtis believes Trump supporters are actually stealing mail trucks to win the election. Wow. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, later this hour, we'll hear from James Robin, author of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. Listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I should mention in our second hour, we'll also talk with Laura Reese. She's Senior Research Fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation on how to stop targeted violence in U.S. cities, something Portland leaders have decided, well, quite frankly, not to do. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Pepperdine's Pete Peterson writes that cancel culture is overtaking colleges and universities, saying that academia's proudest boast for the last hundred years has been its devotion to free inquiry. These days, however, it's hard to keep up with the instances of faculty members denounced and often punished for thought crimes. Significant numbers of academics have, in fact, or in effect, made a U-turn on free speech. Instead, they now favor censoring those whose views, past or present, can no longer be tolerated. Well, Jerry Jones says fans can come watch cowboy football. From the story, Governor Greg Abbott said in June that he would allow 45,000 people into the stadium. So Jones is well within legal bounds to do so. AT&T Stadium can seat up to 100,000, while the main seating capacity is 80,000, giving fans more than enough social distancing space. So if you are looking for a little football, that's the place to go. The billionaire who predicted Trump's 2016 victory says the president will win a second term. And the so-called China mystery seeds were planted by an Arkansas man. They've been prepped for incineration. Well, AOC posted a poem after being told she'll have one minute to speak at the Democratic convention, and that will be pre-recorded. And Chick-fil-A's secret menu item goes viral on TikTok that probably won't be with us in a while. The National Chamber of Commerce has serious concerns about the president's payroll tax deferment, as do others, and big tech companies are preparing to collaborate in a bid to protect the election process. Local Florida officials, they're providing more relief for tenants in imminent danger of eviction, and Dr. Pepper's shortage during the coronavirus has created a buzz. To be clear, there is no medicinal benefit in the soft drink. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos' Title IX sexual misconduct rule will take effect on Friday after a legal uh, battle uh, failed. 
And the budget deficit hit $2.81 trillion in just 10 months, and it's on track to be far more than double the $1.4 trillion all-time record set in 2009. When politics, the far left melts down after Democrats severely limit AOC's speaking role at the convention. As I mentioned, she has one minute, and it's pre-recorded. Republicans say Harris harms Biden in the crucial Rust Belt, saying she's not a great fit out here. Well, you have to pick and choose your winners, I suppose. Harris, former press secretary, is the face of Twitter's censorship and Facebook's Chinese um, uh, communist government, uh, communist party linked fact checker is censoring articles about the Chinese uh, communist government influence in the U.S. elections. Well, the murder rate has spiked in 20 major American cities of late, and there are more homicides than COVID deaths in Kansas City. Chicago looters smashed the door of a Ronald Reagan house while 30 frightened families huddled inside the children's charity. They were terrified. A Georgia clothing store has been called racist for waiving their fee for non-white customers. I'm not sure what fee a clothing store has. But the State Department will now require the Chinese Confucius Institutes to register as foreign agents. A U.S. general has warned of a long-term ISIS resurgence, saying we're going to have huge problems. In the heartland, NBC, ABC, CBS, and CNN show zero results for reports of the five-year-old white child allegedly executed by a black 25-year-old neighbor. And Nevada's governor has fined a banned church for holding services in an open casino. I mean, if they were gambling, that would have been all right, but they held services within the facility? Bad idea. Workers have filed under a million jobless claims for the first time since March, and the EPA plans to peel back the Obama methane controls against the wishes of big oil companies. After losing both her in-laws to COVID-19, Janice Dean, who is a meteorologist uh, for Fox News, is calling for an investigation in New York City. The uh, governor there has said, or the mayor there has said, uh, it would be politically motivated and therefore should not be permitted. Former Vice President Joe Biden on Thursday called for a nationwide mask mandate to help fight the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, saying every American should be wearing a mask when they're outside for the next three months at a minimum. He was speaking to reporters in Delaware. The presumptive Democratic presidential nominee spoke after sitting down for a briefing on the coronavirus with public health experts. He was joined at the briefing by his newly named running mate, Senator Kamala Harris of California. That's what real leadership looks like, she said, after Biden's comments on masks. President Trump has not called for a nationwide mandate and said that is the purview of the state's. Well, the number of Americans uh, filing for unemployment fell below one million for the first time since the pandemic started. Economists surveyed uh, by uh, Refinitive expect 1.12 million new claims. The number uh, was lower. The latest jobless claims figures from the Labor Department, which cover the week ending August the 8th, showing 963,000 workers sought aid last week, pushing the total number since the shutdown began to nearly 56 million. And President Trump today announced what he called an historic peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, saying they agreed to full normalization of relations. Huge breakthrough today, historic peace agreement, the president tweeted this morning. The president, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi and Deputy Supreme Commander of the United Arab Emirates, 
Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed released a joint statement Thursday after the three spoke and agreed to the full normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE. The statement said that the diplomatic breakthrough was at the request of President Trump and that Israel will suspend declaring sovereignty over areas outlined in the president's vision for peace and focus its efforts now on expanding ties with other countries in the Arab and Muslim world. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the historic deal between his country and the UAE, calling it the greatest advancement toward peace between Israel and the Arab world in the last 26 years. Well, the Big East Conference said Wednesday that it will postpone its fall season, joining the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and pausing play out of concern for the welfare of student-athletes during the coronavirus pandemic. Conference officials said the decision was made in consultation with the Big East COVID-19 Task Force, a group consisting of doctors, administrators, infectious diseases specialists, and other experts. The Big East will attempt to play out its full sports schedule in the spring. And nearly nine out of 10 Democrats approve of U.S. Senator Kamala Harris as their party's vice presidential nominee. And she's more popular than presidential candidate Joe Biden among women, young voters and some Republicans, according to a Reuters Ipsos poll released yesterday. The public opinion survey that was taken between the 11th and 12th also found that 60 percent of Americans, including 87 percent of Democrats and 37 percent of, of Republicans, consider the selection of Harris, the first black woman and Asian-American nominated for vice presidency, to be a major milestone for the United States. The U.S. senator from California is viewed about as favorably or better than Biden in most major demographic groups. The polls showed highlighting her potential to help the former vice president expand his support in November's election. Uh, Harris is 55. She's the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants and made her own bid for the White House. She was a former prosecutor and state attorney general in California, became only the second black female U.S. senator in history when elected in 2016. Donald Trump made two contributions totaling $6,000 to Kamala Harris campaign to be reelected to uh, be reelected rather as California's attorney general. Harris was first elected attorney general there in November of 2010. She then assumed the office uh, on the uh, January of 2011. In September of that year, according to records maintained by the California Secretary of State, Donald Trump contributed $5,000 to the reelection of Attorney General Kamala Harris in her 2014 campaign. He contributed an additional $1,000 to the reelect Attorney General Kamala Harris in 2014. In 2019, Fox News reported that the $5,000 contribution that Trump made to Harris resulted from a request that a person working with New York's then Attorney General made. On this day in history, 2016, Michael Phelps wins his record 23rd and final Olympic gold medal. 1889, William Gray of Hartford, Connecticut, receives a patent for a coin-operated telephone. 1952, on this day in history, the film Bambi opens at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. 1961, the border between East and West Berlin is closed and marked with a barbed wire fence. 2003, Libya agrees to set up a $2.7 billion fund for families of the 270 people killed in the 1988 Pan Am bombing. And 2008, Michael Phelps becomes the first athlete in Olympic history to win 11 career gold medals. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from James Robin, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In towns and cities all across the fruited plain, a tidal wave of social activism is systematically erasing pieces of American history. Activists are destroying monuments, burning flags, banning American literature, disregarding the national anthem. Before long, there will be no monument dedicated to American heroes, no stories that praise them. The United States will have become a dark chapter in human history best forgotten. Well, in Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past, James Robbins reveals the dire situation America currently faces. Americans are the guardians of a magnificent uh, legacy of ordered liberty. To pass it on, we have to view the past with understanding and present it with gratitude the future with hope well, erasing america is a call to do just that and a warning of what could happen if we don't well my guest is um james robbins a phd and a senior fellow for national security affairs at the american foreign policy council a commentary writer for usa today and a member of the advisory board of the national civil war museum previously he was an award-winning editorial writer at the washington times a professor at the national defense university and special assistant in the office of the secretary of defense he holds a doctorate from the fletcher school of law and diplomacy at tufts university and has authored other books including the real custer uh, from boy general to Tragic Hero. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about where we stand in terms of understanding and teaching our own nation's history. Now, I'm the descendant of uh, slaves in this country, yet I uh, appreciate the history of the country that uh, they fought bravely uh, for and many died for. Where do we stand as a country in telling our story uh, well, and uh, why is it important that we know that history in moving forward? Well, I think that there's a... a strong division in the country over history and its meaning. And it's a relatively new phenomenon because if you go back 20 or 30 years, you have people on the right and the left who had sort of different variations on the themes, but the fundamentals were strong. People respected the flag. They respected the founding. It's not to say that our country was perfect or everything in the past was, you know, was wonderful. But there was there was a basic acceptance that this was a good country, that the people in the country were decent, and that our, our history was something to be proud of. Now, let's talk about what it means to... Um to embrace the flag, to believe the things that you've just described? Because I think some people imagine that if I honor the flag, if I um, respect our nation's history, that's somehow denying the, the parts of our history that, are, uh, that we're less proud of, that we can, we, we can appreciate and love our country while acknowledging those areas in which we have fallen short. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that, that it's gotten that way, that now the flag has become a, a symbol that's, sort of one side likes it and the other side doesn't. You know, I think back to uh, the Selma marchers who were carrying the American flag and they were singing the Star Spangled Banner because they were telling Americans, hey, you can do better, you know, live up to your ideals. But today it seems like like there's a, a substantial group in this country who either don't believe that we could ever live up to our ideals or they reject those ideals. And so it, it's 
put this sort of fundamental break where you can't really cross that boundary. There's really no discussion over that. Now, most of us, when we celebrate the nation, we are celebrating what you've just described, the ideals. We may not have reached them perfectly. We may still be aspiring toward them, but we shared a common appreciation and regard for our ideals. Have we fallen to the degree now where we don't even share a common set of ideals to which we aspire, even if we admit that we've uh, thus far fallen short or haven't, um, haven't achieved them perfectly? Yeah, I think that, that there's definitely that split now because uh, when now that people are uh, questioning every aspect of history, uh, portraying the founders as fundamentally evil, uh, and then all of the people in history uh, who, you know, again, nobody's perfect. People had, had problems, uh, things that today we would criticize, but those criticisms are now overwhelming any other good aspects that uh, these people might have had. And like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, for example, he was a slave owner. He had uh, very ambivalent ideas about that, but he's also author of the declaration of independence and he's revered as one of our founders yet at uh, the university of Virginia, the school that he founded, his statue is repeatedly vandalized. Uh, people call him a racist and a rapist and things like that. Well, you know, that's not really advancing the discussion. Well, let's talk about what's at stake. Why does history matter? And if we don't uh, know our own history, and I'm referring to the history of America, what's at stake? Well, I think the history is important because we have to understand where we came from, uh, the good and the bad. I think that a lot of it is really good. I think that this country has been a remarkable experiment in human freedom and in progress in overcoming challenges. And that process can continue to be ongoing. But if you look backwards and say, you know what, the, the, the country was built on slavery, it was built on imperialism, uh, it was built on exploitation, everything in the past is bad and we just need to, to wipe all that out. Well, we're going to lose a lot of the really positive and great aspects of this country. And I hope that's not a conscious agenda on the part of uh, many of the progressives, but sometimes I have my doubts. Let's talk about national unity. One of the things that held us together was a common regard for our nation's history, warts and all, and to, to have some perspective on where we came from and where we are headed, and that would inform the things that we would prioritize in the future uh, that needed improvement. What's at stake if we no longer share a common uh, view that, that unites us in some way, uh, that keeps us as a, a cohesive uh, nation as we have been historically? Well, you know, the entire foundation of the Constitution is the idea of compromise. And our political system has always been one in which compromise is what makes progress. People have to get together and iron out their differences because those differences will always exist. And if you can't do that, then you get situations like we have today where everything is just it's like a barroom brawl and things just aren't getting done the way that they could if people work together better. So to the extent that the two sides keep retrenching and, and keep drawing away from each other and keep rejecting the norms of compromise, our system simply cannot function. 
the Constitution is completely based on the notion of compromise. That's why it has overlapping powers and you know different types of votes needed for different things. And so we really need to reverse course on that and get to a point where people can start to look to the national good in ironing out these problems and less to kind of a partisan lens where everything becomes, you know, winner take all. Is the problem that we don't know our history or that we've rejected our history or we misunderstand uh, our history? Oh, I think it's parts of all three, actually. Um, And it's strange to me because today with the Internet, we have, and all the digitization going on, we have more information at our fingertips than ever before. And there is a lot of good work being done out there with all of these archives. But it also seems like people have retreated into their little information bubbles and they just pick out the facts that they like and that support their arguments and they kind of stick to that. And that's another symptom of this national divide that we're talking about. So uh, a well-rounded understanding of history means you have to go back and look at all the aspects of it, the good things that you like, the bad things that you don't like, but understand that all of these things coexisted at the same time, and they're going to coexist today as well. How important is understanding our history in the broader context of what was going on and has gone on in the rest of the world and recognizing the uniqueness of this experiment as opposed to what was going on simultaneously elsewhere and what preceded it? Oh, yeah, it's vitally important, um, particularly as the world grows closer and we have to understand more and more people and their cultures and how we fit into that global framework. Uh, It's important to know that. And it's also important to know what we bring to the table in that discussion you know, and understanding our history in that regard. The United States is a pretty remarkable country. Uh, You know, a country founded on an idea, not on race, not on religion, not on, you know, a landmass, but on an idea of freedom. And that's unusual in the world. There aren't a lot of countries like that. So as we go out in the world and interact with other countries, uh, and sometimes, you know, feeling like, Oh well, what can you know? What can we take from them that's really good? Like, like how can we be better to be like them? Well, you know, maybe they could be better to be like us too. It's not just a one-way street. We're talking about the book "Erasing America: Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past." We're talking with Dr. James Robbins. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. I do need to take a quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. James Robbins. He's the author most recently of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. We're looking at conflicts over history and heritage, the founders, the flag, religion, holidays, immigration. Um, this is a breakdown of the shared sense of nationality, and there's a growing division across the country. And many of us are wringing our hands, not quite sure how to move forward. Let's talk about some of the specifics of the uh, the challenges that we are facing. For example, the national anthem and some of our unifying national symbols. Where do we stand? Well, you know, the whole um, NFL kneeling controversy has really brought that to the fore. Uh, it's hard not to have an opinion on it these days. But, um, you know, traditionally the national anthem has been something that people rally around. It's something that, that people revere. It was played at games 
uh, you know, baseball and football because it was a way to bring people together. But now it's being seen as a symbol of division. And that's really not a positive development. There's really no reason uh, to see it as a symbol of division. And I go into the book in detail on the idea that there, like, there's racist code language in it, which is actually not true. So um, hopefully people can, can figure out a way to uh, come back together on this issue because you know, the, the whole point of the anthem is to make us remember that we're all Americans together. Let's talk about... Um uh, religious principles that were traditionally an important part of American public life, but we can't even agree on certain phrases uh, that have essentially been canonized, God bless you, or uh, or um, in God we trust, that are being challenged as well. Um, in, in favor of diversity that focuses on our differences uh, rather than the things we share in common. Well, you know, traditionally our country has been one of faith, uh, people came to this country in many cases because they were persecuted for their religion abroad, so they came here to find a way to worship uh, in the manner of their choosing. And there is religious freedom in the country. Uh, it's In the past, they, these types of disputes would arise over First Amendment questions, like could you have prayer in school or could you have a nativity scene on public grounds? But increasingly, it's becoming more of an, a, one of these uh, diversity issues where you're excluding somebody else if you say, for example, God bless you if someone sneezes, or any kind of public expression of faith is inherently exclusionary to those who do not share that faith. And that's really troubling because people should be able to express the things that are so deeply held in their hearts, their faith and, you know, how they view God. Or if they don't view God, you know, that's also perfectly acceptable in this country. But making that a a focus outside of politics, which is kind of an everyday life, that's that's very damaging because it, it offends so many people. And I really think the folks who are making this an issue should try to understand how important it is to others to have their faith and to be able to express it. The the idea of um, being easily offended and embracing diversity on the one hand, but defining it so narrowly that it really doesn't reflect any real difference that may exist among us uh, other than superficial uh, diversity. How much of a challenge is it for us to renegotiate what uh, diversity actually means and then tolerating one another when we have differences of opinion? Well, it's a big challenge, uh, particularly when people say, well, in the, name of, in the name of inclusion, we have to exclude a bunch of stuff. Or, uh, you know, in the name of diversity, we have to stamp out differences. It's almost a, a twisting of the language. <clears throat> really, people just, you know, not just tolerance, but acceptance, I think, is what is needed. Understanding that there are a whole lot of differences in this country. Our whole country is based on differences, and we gain strength from having those differences. So I think if people understand that maybe they don't have all the answers, you know, have a little humility in approaching some of these important questions, I really think that's the starting point. Uh, and then understanding that other people, you may not agree with them, but it doesn't mean that their ideas or, or where they're coming from doesn't have a basis or may not even be valid. 
Well, let's talk about the notion that we are a nation with a history worth remembering when there are challenges to whether or not we ought to be considered a nation at all. There's there are calls to erase the border altogether, uh, which, of course, is dividing America uh, even further. Your thoughts on why having borders is important in terms of maintaining a nationality whose history is worth remembering? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, one is the fact that if you just do away with national borders, you're going to have all kinds of problems with crime, with the social systems and uh, smuggling and things of that nature. You have to have some kinds of controls because we have a great country here. A lot of folks from the developing world would like to come here, and I'm not against them coming here, but it has to be done in an orderly way. Uh, The system couldn't absorb so many people just descending on it all at once. And the other thing that's different these days than used to be, like a hundred years ago when immigrants came, and they were coming from all over the world, but they came here to be Americans, and they were taught what that meant, and they understood it, and they absorbed it, they assimilated, and they wanted that. Uh, There was a sense of nationalism. Today, immigrants are told, well, you don't have to assimilate to this country, you know, the the country that's already being described in negative terms. Uh, You keep your own language, you keep your own culture, uh, you know, and maintain a part. Well, that's not good for national unity because if people believe that they don't have to give something to the country that they're coming to, then they won't. They'll just take from it, and that creates uh, anger and division and lack of understanding. Where do we go from here? And are you optimistic that we can regain a regard for our history that will be a unifying factor as we move forward? Yes, I think so. I think people are becoming much more aware of this issue. And in in the back of the book, I have a number of recommendations for things that people can do to try to change the course a little bit. And one important recommendation I make is that people share their family stories of America, uh, whether it goes back one generation or many generations. Uh, you know, what's the family history in America? How has the uh, American dream been manifested in your own family? Or maybe it hasn't, but, you know, maybe it will. And, and try to rekindle that sense, that sentiment of uh, affection for the country, because we all came from somewhere. And when you make it that real, I think it makes it much more meaningful to people. When we honor our own country, for example, the phrase, God bless America, some would suggest that we're being arrogant and exclusive and imagine ourselves to be superior. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're excluding other countries and we hope that they experience God's favor as well. Is it, uh, is it nationalistic and arrogant uh, to hope for the best with regard to the country you happen to be in? Well, I doubt it. I, I, I think it's okay to say that we live in a great country. I, I firmly believe that we do. It's not perfect, but it's ours, and we can make it even better. It's good to approach it optimistically and to think that things can get better. If folks in other countries want to feel great about their countries, that's good too. Everybody should. It's good to feel good about where you live, and it's good to improve it. And I don't think that it's I mean, nationalistic in a negative way to say, you know, USA or, you know, we have a great country. Why not? We do have a great country. And if we if we take that not as a, uh, you know, an emotional thing, but as as a reasonable thing, like be able to say 
here's why our country is so good. It's not an insult to anybody else. We're just saying, you know what, we have a lot going for us and we should be grateful about that. Well, I appreciate the book so much and would recommend it to our listeners. Again, we're talking about erasing America, losing our future by destroying our past. Uh, Dr. Robbins, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate it very much. And by the way, the book is published by Regnery. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. For those of us living in the Portland area and in the surrounding metropolitan area, Rioting and violence has become something of a normal occurrence. It's frustrating that our leaders don't seem to have any desire to address it in a constructive way that would allow the downtown area to open up again for businesses to at least attempt to reopen and thrive. My next guest uh, wrote an article, How to Stop Targeted Violence in U.S. Cities. Uh, She points out that it's not surprising that the worst violence has occurred in cities like ours, where local politicians have at least tacitly supported the rioters. Uh, The key to um, addressing this is the subject of the article that appeared in the National Interest. And joining us to talk about it is Laura Reese. She's a senior research fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation. Again, to talk about how to stop targeted violence in U.S. cities. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Georgine. I think one of the frustrations, at least in my community, isn't so much what needs to happen, what should be happening, but an unwillingness on the part of city leaders and um, the, the state's attorney to address this head on. Are you seeing this across the country where it's a matter of the will rather than the absence of a clear direction and how to address what we're seeing in Portland and other cities across the country? Yes, it certainly is a lack of will. And I think one example of that was in Seattle. Um, CHOP was let to carry on and and run amok for a period of time. Uh, But when the uh, violent protesters and rioters turned their sights on the mayor um, at a residence, then um, the mayor suddenly gained a will to regain order and uh, the CHOP was dismantled pretty quickly. Um, so I think that that's a good example of where a local leader has the will to maintain law and order. It can happen. Now, we've had um, some peaceful protests, but violent out up, uh, uprisings as well in Portland for more than 70 days. And one of the points that you make in the um, National Interest article is that jurisdictions that fail to develop and implement an effective action plan can pretty much resign themselves to many more months of criminal destruction and anarchy. Uh, while their law-abiding citizens, me and others in this area, expect and deserve better. Are you seeing a, a change at all among leaders who now recognize this has gone on too long, that we need to begin to implement some steps that will eliminate this threat to the, the safety of law-abiding citizens? Well, there seems to be changes, but I have to say Port, Portland is ebbing and flowing. I mean, for over two months, the focus of the rioters was the federal courthouse and interacting with federal police. And while that was occurring, state and local leaders there blamed President Trump, blamed DHS, and said they were the ones who were provoking these premeditated rioters. Then the uh, Oregon governor decided that she would allow cooperation with uh, DHS officers and things quieted down at the courthouse. The Uh, riots turned elsewhere against 
you know, the Portland police. And there seemed to be suddenly from the mayor, Mayor Wheeler, this wasn't peaceful protest any longer. It was unlawful activity. Um, and then last night, the riots turned back to the to the courthouse. So it, it almost seems like it depends on the target of the violence. If it's against federal uh, officers, which is under, are under the purview of President Trump, then, you know, it's, it's Trump's fault and, and the federal government's fault. If it's against state and local property and citizens that are the responsibility of those leaders, then suddenly it is unlawful activity. Now, you make the point that the job one needs to be taking criminals off the streets and restoring public order. That is yet to be the case in some areas in the Portland metro area. Talk a bit about some of the uh, the elements that are necessary in order for that to, to happen. You point out that it begins with cooperation among all levels of law enforcement. Yes, if you ask any law enforcement officer, they will tell you that it is critical that uh, they work across jurisdictions, state, local, and federal law enforcement officers communicating together uh, and cooperating. And when that is interfered with by local leaders, it can lead to very dangerous results. And that has occurred in, in Portland, where the federal police were prohibited from cooperating with state and local police. Um, again, once uh, the Oregon governor allowed that cooperation to resume, we instantaneously saw positive results. Um, so it is, it's critical that the law enforcement officers be able to communicate and work together at, at all levels. You also make the point that the media has an important role to play in this as well, uh, that accuracy and context are essential. There are a lot of competing messages as to what's actually happening. And you give an example that many Americans are unaware of the Marxist roots beneath some of the current riots. How do you think the media has performed up to this point and where they've fallen short? What do they need to do differently to contribute to restoring civil order? So much of the mainstream media has portrayed the federal law enforcement as the ones provoking uh, so-called peaceful protests. They have turned a blind eye to the very dangerous, harmful rioting and looting, et cetera, that has gone on. And it perpetuates these riots night after night after night. Um, And it has not only made media uh, very unobjective and biased, but it, it does not tell the American public what is really going on. Um, and I think also it's important to note that the ACLU has sued and successfully sought a temporary restraining order to prohibit uh, Portland police from video streaming the riots. Incredible. So they do not want uh, reality to get out and the real um, activity and harm and, and danger to be seen. They want a one-sided narrative to be repeated, which is these are peaceful protests and it's the federal officers who are the, the bad guys. Yeah, not to mention uh, accountability preventing that from happening. Now, you offer um, four major initiatives that would uh, be necessary in order for peace to be restored. Can you speak briefly to each of the four? Sure. It's basically protect citizens and and property, uh, prosecute those who are violating state and federal law, 
communicate what is really going on in the streets and then recover, rebuild these uh, communities that have been destroyed all these many weeks. Um, And so uh, I'll talk a little bit about prosecuting because in addition to very biased media, there is seems to be a growing number of what I'll call rogue prosecutors. And they're not really true prosecutors. They are declining to prosecute many of these crimes that are occurring. And they are allowing many of these rioters back out onto the street just to go riot again the very next night. And you're seeing that in Oregon as well now. Uh, The Oregon district attorney is not prosecuting many of these rioters. So it, it just feeds this this anger and this mob mentality to continue night after night. It's very important that people see consequences and that there are in fact consequences for um, breaking the law to stop this dangerous activity. I was talking to a neighbor just yesterday and she suggested that um, there ought to be prosecutions and community service where they are part of the recovery. Uh, They're cleaning up the graffiti. They're responsible for cleaning up some of the areas that have been devastated uh, over these last uh, several months. But uh, again, the prosecutor, the the district attorney in Oregon has decided uh, that's not going to be the case. There's no deterrence as far as many of us can see that uh, to prevent this from moving forward into the third and fourth month leading up, I suppose, to the election in November. Yeah, as long as there's leniency in Portland or any other city, this will continue and it will spread. And you're right, the the aim does seem to be to take this up to the election, um, to portray police at any level as racist, and to portray, you know, President Trump's America as in chaos. That seems to be the end goal. Laura Reese, thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate your article and taking the time to speak with us here today. Thank you very much. Again, Laura Reese is Senior Research Fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation. Her um, article appears in um, the National Interest, uh, nationalinterest.org for more information. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. President Trump uh, today blamed Democrats' push for funding for universal mail-in ballots as one of the reasons for a delay in negotiations over a fourth coronavirus stimulus package claiming the the practice in the 2020 election would cause the greatest fraud in history. Well, during an exclusive interview uh, with um, Maria Bartiromo on Thursday morning, the president said negotiations over the fourth economic stimulus relief package were held up in part due to Democrats' demands for billions of dollars in funding toward mail-in voting. It's their fault, he says. They want $3.5 billion for something that's fraudulent, For the mail-in voters, universal mail-in ballots, they want $25 billion for the post office. They need that money so it can work and they can take these millions and millions of ballots. Well, the president added, but if they don't get those two items, then they can't have a mail-in ballots. Well, the president went on to slam the practice, saying that ballots have been sent to dogs, to dead people, citing states like Virginia, where he said more than 500,000 phony ballot applications were sent to voters. And in New York, where mail-in voting caused a week-long A weeks-long delay, let's clarify that, in announcing results for some races in the state's primary. How would you like to have $3.5 trillion for mail-in voting? You know how much money that is? They want $25 billion for the post office because the post office is going to have to go to town to get these ridiculous ballots in, the president said. Well, he, of course, has been criticized from both sides of the aisle for um, making such brazen statements against the 
the post office delivering ballots and, of course, some deliberately interpreting that to mean that the president is trying to rig the election. But the president and the Republican Party have been warning for months about possible fraud connected to mail-in voting. The RNC and the Trump campaign have filed lawsuits to hit back against efforts by Democrats to overhaul voting laws in response to the pandemic, saying if you can go to a casino, if you can go to a grocery store, if you can go to the bank, if you can socially distance, you can go to the polls in places where sending out ballots to each and every name that's ever appeared on the uh, the voting list uh, is begging for uh, fraud. Now, Democrats pushing back against the claim by Trump and the GOP say that cases of actual voter fraud are limited and claim that Republicans are trying to suppress voter turnout to improve their chances of winning elections. Meanwhile, the president went on to further slam Democrats like freshman progressive Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who he predicted would eventually challenge Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and said she would win. The president, though, slammed her as a poor student, saying uh, she's, uh, she yaps but said that Schumer will um, be heated by her. Oh, my. Um, Enough of that. In any event, the opposition, the back and forth over whether or not an all-mail-in ballot where it's not like an absentee ballot where you request the ballot, then the ballot is sent to you. With this all-mail ballot, they're just sent out to the names uh, of virtually anyone who's uh, on the list, whether or not they're, um, uh, they're valid and Of course, we've talked about some of the concerns surrounding all of that. Well, about 200 march to the um, Penumbra Kelly building on southeast or in southeast Portland on Tuesday uh, and peacefully chanted during a demonstration against police, systematic racism and other causes hours after the Multnomah County District Attorney announced his office would not prosecute certain charges stemming from the ongoing protests. Um, this is night 75, alternating between chants of Black Lives Matter, say his name, say her name, and other um, statements. Protesters were peaceful outside the uh, uh, Penumbra Kelly building, which is shared by the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and Portland's Police Bureau on East Burnside and Southeast 47th after marching there from Laurelhurst Park for a direct action march. By the time the marchers neared the facility, Portland police issued a warning to demonstrators and members of the press against entering the property and that those who did were trespassing and subject to arrest, use of tear gas, crowd control agents, and or impact weapons. Authority use, authorities rather used bright lights on their vehicles to shine into the crowd as protesters recorded the demonstration. The crowd shrank considerably by midnight, um, and in no physical clashes between demonstrators and police were witnessed by local media. Earlier in the night, an ambulance was also called to the scene as the demonstrators neared the uh, police facility after a protester appeared to have fallen off the back of a pickup truck. The injured uh, protesters seemed to be responsive, but again, this was not due to a clash. Protesters also gathered downtown, according to Portland Police Bureau, blocking traffic for several hours near Southwest 3rd and Main. Police said they did not interact with the crowd. Multnomah County District uh, Attorney Mike Schmidt on Tuesday uh, says his office will not prosecute cases where the most serious offense is a city ordinance uh, violation or where the charges did not involve deliberate property damage. So apparently city ordinances can be um, overlooked when uh, conducting oneself in Portland uh, would have to involve theft or the use of um, or threat of force against another person. Those charges include interfering with a peace officer, second degree disorderly conduct, third degree escape, harassment, and more. There have been um, about 550 arrests so far stemming from 
the nightly protest that started on the 29th of May here in the Portland area. Nine people were arrested following Monday night's demonstrations outside the police bureau in Portland, the precinct. Most of those included charges that would not be prosecuted under the DA's new rules. In Bend, federal agents clashed with hundreds of protesters late Wednesday night after an hours-long standoff sparked by arrests of two men by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers who said they were a threat to the public. Bend's episode, which is about a three-hour drive from Portland, was the latest in tensions among protesters, local police, and federal agents. Said um, the Deschutes uh, County District Attorney who attended the protest, I've never seen been so disgusted by my government and so proud of my community. The protest spanned hours as two unmarked ICE buses were blocked by pro- uh, protesters who apparently witnessed the arrest. Shortly before midnight, federal agents removed the two detained men from a bus and left the scene. The Protesters also dispersed, according to the Oregon Public Broadcasting reporters. It appeared the federal agents uh, have left the area. Uh, Ben Police said it had been uh, made aware that ICE agents were in the city conducting an investigation, but were not given details, according to the department. The Ben Police are not involved with ICE operations, the statement read. Well, protesters, uh, protest organizers asked participants not to vandalize the buses, uh, and after one person wrote to on a bus, another person cleaned it off, according to uh, OPB. Now, apparently, they're more polite in the Bend area. It's not clear what the um, charges of, of these two uh, labeled dangerous to the community by ICE. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the law enforcement activity there is part of the U.S. Uh, immigration and Customs Enforcement mission to arrest criminal aliens presenting a danger to public safety, they said, and take them off the street. Uh, The two individuals arrested each had a history of criminal, violent behavior. And while ICE respects the rights of people to voice their opinions peacefully, that does not include illegally interfering with their federal law enforcement duties. It said ICE will take all necessary measures to ensure the safety of its officers and detainees and will vigorously pursue prosecution against anyone who puts them in harm's way. Voters are ready for the police to put an end to the continuing violent protests nationwide. Most also say the protesters will be important to their vote in the upcoming elections. When asked which is closer to their own thinking, 50 percent of likely U.S. voters say the police should crack down on the protests to bring them to an end. A new Rasmussen Reports national telephone and online survey finds that 38 percent disagree and believe the protests should be allowed to continue until the protesters decide to end them. Eleven percent are undecided. Uh, There's a sharp partisan disagreement on the question, though. While 75 percent of Republicans and the plurality, excuse me, plurality, 47 percent of unaffiliated voters think the police should crack down on the protests. Just 31 percent of Democrats agree. Fifty six percent of Democrats say the protests should be permitted to continue until the protesters want them to end. 72% of all voters say that they are concerned about the growing level of violent protests nationwide, with 43% uh, who are very concerned. 62% say the growing level of violent protests is important to their vote in the next election, including 35% who say it is very important. The survey of 1,000 likely voters was conducted the 10th and 11th of August by Rasmussen Reports. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, protests in Portland have stretched on for some 75 straight nights, leaving many wondering how much longer they're going to last. And sociologists are asking protesters, what what are you demanding? Huh. As the nightly events continue, some are wondering what the protests hope to gain. Dr. Shirley Jackson is a professor of black studies at Portland State University. She says many African-Americans are wondering why certain people are still out protesting on our behalf when even we are saying, what are you demanding? We ask for certain things. We are getting those things. And what we would really like to do is see those things being implemented. But there is concern the attention is being drawn away from the movement. Dr. Randy Blazik, sociologist and chair of the Oregon Coalition Against Hate, told um, Coin6 News that since the federal officers left, it appears protesters have been largely policing themselves, putting out fires started by others and quelling violent behavior. But where do we go from here? What's going to have to happen is the movement to another phase of this conflict, and that phase has to do with dialogue. That phase has to do with the actual expectations, hopes of the protesters are in terms of real systematic change, Blazik says. I want people to really think about what this really means in the grand scheme of black lives. If we are talking about the continued protests and aiding black lives, I'm not quite sure how many African Americans are thinking that this is doing so. And is helpful. Jackson says during the era of COVID-19, other issues impacting African-Americans, including health issues, housing, jobs, employment, security and being ignored. Ignoring those issues is really not helpful. It's actually detrimental to our health and our safety because Black Lives Matter certainly involves the police, but it involves other things as well. Now, the question at this point is, do Black Lives Matter or do Black Voices also matter when you have an increasing number of leaders questioning the ongoing demonstrations, protests, some of which have been violent, but not all, uh, not necessarily reflecting real um, progress. Well, the Portland attorney has called out the Oregon district attorney for violating fundamental principles of equal protection of the laws by deciding not to prosecute hundreds of Portland protesters Uh, Speaking on Fox and Friends, uh, attorney James um, Bucall says, we have a prosecutor who was discarded centuries of common sense about criminal law and deterrence and incapacitation and all the other benefits of arresting people for the purpose of promoting public disorder in Portland. Well, Bucall made the comments two days after Multnomah County District Attorney Schmidt announced that charges will be dropped against protesters who were arrested and accused of interfering with a peace officer or parole and prohibition officers, disorderly conduct, criminal trespass, escape, harassment and riots, unless they were accompanied by some other charge of physical violence or property damage. He says the protesters are angry and deeply frustrated with what they perceive to be structural inequalities in our basic social fabric. And this frustration can escalate to levels of violence uh, and uh, violations of the law, Schmidt says. Well, this policy acknowledges that centuries of disparate treatment of our black and brown communities, most of which are not in the protests, um, have left deep wounds and that the healing process will not be easy or quick. Now, most of the arrests are not black or brown people. They're white people speaking on behalf, presumably, of black and brown people. So this doesn't it quite ring uh, true. Uh, Jillian Mail, who's the host of the program, noted on Thursday that only 45 of the 550 cases that police referred to are being prosecuted. She then asked Bucall um, what type of uh, precedent this move sets, not only in Portland, but in cities across this, the country. And he responded, it sets the precedent that if you are providing the preferred message of the Democratic Party machine, uh, 
that you are insulated from criminal law. Essentially, it takes criminal conduct and it says, oh, this is a First Amendment conduct. But if anybody on the right wing does it, it's still criminal conduct and it violates fundamental principles of equal protection of the law. So depending on your viewpoint and the message you're trying to convey, you may or may not be held accountable for your actions. Meanwhile, in Seattle, Mayor Jenny Durkin asked the state Supreme Court to reverse the decision of a King County Circuit Court judge that allowed a recall effort to move forward against her, which could result in her expulsion from office. Durkin uh, was called out by five Seattle residents who filed a petition seeking to recall her because of how law enforcement office, officials rather have responded to protests this summer. Now, Durkin reportedly asked the circuit court judge to reconsider the decision, but the request was denied. The state's highest court is now being asked to render judgment after a notice of appeal was filed on Wednesday, according to the Seattle Times. Well, the petitioners, in turn, asked the state Supreme Court to reconsider two of the charges the judge initially dismissed and to broaden their original charges against the mayor, Mayor Durkin. Well, this comes just one day after Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best announced her resignation, saying that she was not leaving because of pay cuts to her department, but rather because of the lack of respect toward her fellow officers. Best's resignation comes with the city council uh, decision to reduce the department by as much as uh, as many rather as 100 officers through layoffs and attrition and a 50 percent cut in that budget. That resignation uh, becomes effective on the 2nd of September. Victor Davis Hansen, whose writing I always enjoyed, uh, recently wrote an article. It was uh, titled The Thin Veneer of American Civilization. He points out that in a flash, it's been blown away, revealing the barbarism beneath. The seeds of destruction were planted long ago. Nine months ago, New York was a thriving, though poorly governed metropolis. It was coasting on the more or less good governance of its prior two mayors and on its ancestral role as the global nexus of financial finance and capital. The city is now something out of a postmodern apocalyptic movie reeling from the effects of a neutron bomb. Ditto in varying degrees in Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco, the anti-broken windows metropolises of America. Walking in San Francisco today reminds me of visiting old Cairo in 1973, although the latter lacked the needles and feces of the former. At the present increasing rate of police defunding, homeless encampments, the emptying of jails and prisons, the green lighting of rioting and vandalism, the flight of the wealthy, the revolutionary change to Skype, Zoom, teleworking, the exodus of upper middle class liberal families to safe houses in the New York and New England countryside, once beautiful New York City is in danger of becoming the nation's aneurysm. That is, after the recovery, it and other blue cities may be seen as permanent weak veins and arteries prone to sudden fatal hemorrhaging that could implode at any moment and thus may become metaphorically tied off as the country reroutes around them. In the old days of 2019, the old days, tolerant Americans more or less accepted the finely crafted statues of sometimes less than inspiring and formally illustrious to some heroes were part of our history. For example, integral to California's rich historical culture were its missions, acknowledged by Father Sarah's numerous eponymous streets and statues. No one in his right mind believed that renaming a mall named Sarah at Stanford University would help mitigate the weekend murder rate in Chicago or endemic poverty of illegal aliens in my own neighborhood, he writes. 
The same allowance for imperfection by present standards was made for Robert E. Lee, capable though not brilliant strategist, and by the standards of his time and space considered a good man who fought for a terrible cause. His name and likeness were reminders to America of the tragedy of the Civil War that saw 700,000 Americans die in the struggle to end slavery. Focusing on inner-city gun violence or abortion or integrating the public schools with the scions of the white upper class might do far more for racial relations than toppling more bronze horses and riders. But that is the point. Focus on the irrelevant uh, misdemeanor as therapy for ignoring the existential felony. But that idea of live, or rather live and let live with the past is ancient history now and hundreds of decapitated and defaced statues ago. The mindless mob appeased and enabled by a terrified establishment has systematically with impunity been destroying as many of the reference of American history as it can. The fools of the bipartisan elite at first believed the iconoclasm was selective, rational and measured. It was not. The point was never to fixate on the sins of the ancient slaveholder or the European discoverer of America or the author of Don Quixote, nor was the point to topple the bad in order to commission the better to take its place. After all, for these statue topplers, what icon might be substituted given the array of their progressive heroes, such as Wilsonian racists, mass murdering Maoists, thugs masquerading as revolutionaries such as Che, or liberal icons like the eugenicist Margaret Sanger, or even the internment signer FDR. Now we're going to take a break, but we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I've been referencing Victor Davis Hansen piece, The Thin Veneer of American Civilization. And he was making the point that uh, if the point was to topple the bad in order to commission the better to take its place, if that wasn't the point, then what is the point? He writes that the point instead was to destroy and deface most all images of America, from Frederick Douglass to Ulysses S. Grant to Lincoln and World War II heroes such as Churchill. The strategy of the left was that if they could easily wage war on the bronze and stone of the past without repercussions, then as fear and terror mounted, they could turn to the flesh and blood enemies of the people in the present. Anyone who with impunity... Uh, burns books, including the Bible, vandalizes memorials, defaces public buildings, or topples statues at night, eventually gets around to trying to um, uh, to perpetrate such violence on real people of the present. Portland is a good example, as the spoiled of the middle class seek each night to ignite a police station to roast the officers barricaded inside. Another is Chicago, and that's, by the way, a bit of an overstatement. Another is Chicago, where looters uh, target high-end boutiques, um, mouthing slogans of social justice. Once upon a time, trying to torch a federal courthouse would earn years in prison, and simply taking over a large chunk of a downtown to recreate Lord of the Flies was unthinkable. But not now. Today, you can go to jail for reopening a gym that requires masks, social distancing, and constant cleaning with antiseptics. But you will not go to jail if you assemble en masse to riot, unmasked, armored with makeshift paddling. Uh, padding, umbrellas, and helmets, and you're free to shout and spray in the faces of officers and fellow looters and rioters alike. Yet this is the hard phase, the Jacobian moment of the revolution, and we have not seen the full extent of the ongoing counter-revolution that will thin out the violence in the uh, the violent in the street and in some ways fall more heavily on those who have empowered it. There will be a counter-revolution because without one, there 
is not much of America left. And about 250 million people liked the America prior to March 1st. And finally, in extremis, won't be easily, uh, won't easily give it up. Well, I hope that uh, that is, in, in fact, the case. Washington and Lincoln, after all, do not just belong to some unhinged Antifa members mad at America because he is mostly mad at himself to almost every Jacobin tactic from defunding the police to violent attacks on federal property. The people are opposed and they make no apologies for their past or present. What will the counter-revolutionary entail in areas beyond politics? I wager that the NBA, the NFL, and perhaps even Major League Baseball will soon have a come-to-Jesus moment. Either they will continue with the kneeling, uh, the left-wing sloganeering, the mock heroic logos, and the finger-pointing at their audiences, and thus slow, uh, slowly grow shriller and more irrelevant as America refuses to subsidize insults to their person and country, or they were quietly returned to the pre-Kaepernick world, as the NFL, for example, had in 2019, when politics was seen as bad business and a business-for-profit sport. If the virus lockdown, recession, street violence have taught us anything, it's that Americans don't need LeBron James offering another pro-Chinese banality, another Kaepernick ad that hails his courage, or another appeasing quarterback fresh out of the North, fresh out of a North Korea-like re-education camp, apologizing for his now incorrect honoring of the flag. The universality, universe, excuse me, universities told us that they could charge $80,000 a year for the campus experience, that uh, piling up $200,000 in debt for a BA degree was a wise investment, and that such campus intellectuals and progressives needed to pay no attention to the Bill of Rights. Fine, but as... Um, but all such nonsense was predicted on the belief, predicated rather on the belief that their brands were worth the cost. And the experience on campus was both unique and precious. Well, in the past year, the curtain pulled away and the con was exposed. You can stay home and tell a learn without stepping foot on campus. A poor substitute for live teaching, but not so poor a substitute given the cost, the debt and the indoctrination. The advantage of uh, Princeton or Stanford degree is now exposed, not as proof of a superior education, but simply the purchase of a cattle brand to separate one's future career from the herd. Not much different from having Michael Jordan's name on an otherwise pedestrian pair of tennis shoes. At some point, the public will want the federal government to turn over the student loan guaranteeing business to the universities, which will then cut costs. Endowments of such politicized and warped institutions will soon be taxed. And America will let go of the idea that a 21st century BA degree has anything to do with knowledge, inductive thinking and learning. After all, somebody educated those privileged, prolonged adolescents whom we see nightly in the streets, the environmentalists who leave trash and uh, flotsam and jetsam as their trail, the woke who shout in the face of black police and arrogantly appoint themselves the anarchist brains of BLM, the compassionate who try to burn down, blind, attack the elderly and destroy anything they cannot themselves create. Polls show that Americans are overwhelmingly in overwhelming numbers, now believe that the media are hopelessly biased. NBC and other networks and cable outlets are laying off employees. The no-holds-barred arenas of the Internet and social media are replacing newspapers and televised news as sources of public information, not because they're more accurate or less biased, but because consumers can access their bias and inaccuracy at far cheaper prices. Woke journalists have bragged that they no longer need to be um, anachronistically disinterested in the age of Trump. So why pay a marquee reporter $200,000 when you can get a comparable flack to write the same stuff 
online for a tenth of the price. The 60s generation is going out as it uh, came in, gross, loud, and cowardly, destroying the very institutions for others that it so selfishly consumed for its own benefit. If we wish to know why America's veneer of civilization was so thin and this year so easily scraped away, revealing barbarism beneath, look to a generation's architects in the universities, the media, sports, corporations, politics, who long ago seeded their cultural IEDs and are now giddy, they are at least going off, though terrified that the ensuing blasts are reverberating ever closer to home. Victor Davis Hansen writing on this thin veneer of American civilization, a civilization that's being uh, wiped away. Well, we are living in some very challenging times, and as we uh, attempt to navigate through them in a way that isn't just politically savvy, isn't just culturally irrelevant, but is also reflective of a biblical worldview, the challenge is to look to God's Word for guidance in how to navigate in a way that honors Him, that makes His name known, that extends the love of Christ, even in areas and in ways that perhaps Uh, seem distasteful in our current environment, to seek to understand in a way um, that we will be a blessing rather than a curse to our communities, and to spend time on our knees praying for revival. Um, What a privilege it is that we can bring all of our concerns, even a need for direction and clarity, before the throne of grace and ask for wisdom. And as the uh, book of James suggests, he will not um, grudgingly uh, withhold that from us when we ask in faith believing. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow as we spend some of our time taking a look at the lighter side of the news. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.